Hello. I am a robot. You are listening to an echo of glory. A 200% podcast. Hello everybody, and welcome to the 7th episode of An Echo of Glory, a 200% podcast. My name is Ian King, and over the course of this series I'll be telling you the history of football in England and Wales, tracing the story of the game from the mob game of the Middle Ages right through to the modern day. While the England national football team was labouring under the weight of its own contradictions, the club game in this country in the post-war years was booming, with crowds hitting record levels. With midweek evening matches now also a possibility, the biggest clubs started to look across the ocean towards Europe for the most fundamental change in the way that the cub game had been played since the first league football in 1888. This is also, however, the story of a dream that died. This is the story of football in England and Wales between 1946 and 1958. started with Liverpool winning the First Division Championship. It was their first league title since 1923, 23 largely mediocre years earlier. And attendances boomed. Record low unemployment rate had led to better working conditions, better wages and more free time. Clubs across the whole of the game saw their attendances swell. In a country which had been considerably damaged by air raids and was close to bankruptcy due to the cost of the war, entertainment options were limited. Football was inexpensive and it was accessible. The boom was remarkable. The average attendance for a First Division match during the 1938-39 season was 24,820. For the 1946-47 season, it was 32,253, and two years later, it was 38,792, a figure which remains the record to this day. The lower divisions did, if anything, even better. Attendances increased by 50%, and five-figure crowds in Division 3 North and South became commonplace. At the end of the 1946-47 season, All four divisions of the Football League had an average attendance of over 10,000. That's only happened twice since. The first real signs of the boom to come, however, came just weeks after the end of the Second World War. Silence, 
Dynamo Moscow arrived in London in the middle of November 1945, just 10 weeks after victory over Japan had finally brought the Second World War to a close. This, however, wasn't really Dynamo Moscow. The squad was peppered with a number of players with no relation to the club. In truth, this was a national team visiting Britain under the Dynamo name. Their first opponents were Chelsea at Stamford Bridge. A media scrum had followed the Soviet team around since they landed in London, and whilst a crowd of 74,797 was the recorded attendance for this match, it has been claimed that the attendance that day might have been as high as 120,000. The match ended in a 3-3 draw, and at the final whistle, fans invaded the pitch and lifted the Russian players onto their shoulders as though heroes. The very next day, following a meeting in Paris, FIFA issued an invitation to the USSR to join its organisation. Nobody had known what this Dynamo Moscow side would be like before the Chelsea match, but few believed that they would be skilled enough to match an English first division team. However, not only had they held them to a draw, but they had done so with style and gusto. Dynamo's next trip was to Wales to play Cardiff City, who, as though to emphasise the state nature of the trip, were playing in the third division south at the time. Dynamo ran riot in Cardiff, winning by 10 goals to 1 in front of a crowd of 60,000. It had been suggested before they arrived that Dynamo were unlikely to be much better than this Cardiff team. As ever, with these pronouncements of superiority over somebody abroad, this was based on little more than conjecture and hubris. Before travelling to the UK, a list of requests was sent to the FA on behalf of Dynamo. One of these requests was to play the Arsenal. This was agreed, but with Highbury still requisitioned by the Ministry of Defence, the match had to be switched to a very foggy White Hart Lane. This time, Dynamo won by four goals to three, and they finished off their tour a few days later with a 2-2 draw away to Rangers. They returned to the USSR as heroes, with two wins and two draws from their trip to Britain. Fated for returning from a trip to the home of football, unbeaten. Following their triumph over Cardiff, the Moscow Dynamos met Arsenal. I say they met them, but I very much doubt if they'd recognise them again, for it was very foggy football. The Russian ref is reported to have made some puzzling decisions. The Dynamos said Arsenal were in England rather than a club team. Certainly Arsenal were anxious to put out a side worthy of the Russians. But anyway, the English climate did its very utmost to wreck the whole show. The large crowd occasionally caught a hazy glimpse of the players as they loomed up out of the fog in pursuit of a half-invisible football. Even our camera filmed a bit of the fun. Exciting moments in the Dynamo's goal mouth, I think it is, as well as a few items of midfield play. The Russians beat Arsenal, or England, and the fog, 4-3. From 1946 on, the league season resumed, but the internationalism of the era meant that change within the game was inevitable. Flying was becoming more accessible than ever, and this opened up the possibility of travel to foreign climes to play matches. This, however, came with attendant risks, 
and the whole of football looked on in horror in May 1949 when Il Grande Torino team was killed in a plane crash over the Italian city of Turin. Torino had dominated post-war football in Italy in a manner which made them famous around the world. They'd ended the 1947-48 season having scored 125 goals in Serie A and were headed for another league trophy when they travelled to Lisbon for a friendly match against Benfica in honour of captain Francisco Ferreira. Upon their return to Turin, however, their plane got lost in heavy fog whilst trying to land at the airport and crashed into a retaining wall at the back of the Basilica of Superga, which stands on a hill on the outskirts of the city. 31 people died, and there were no survivors. The entire team, probably the greatest European club team of the era, was entirely wiped out in one stroke. The rush towards European football had already started to gather pace, but this accident was a reminder to everybody that this new form of travel, at the time, came with attendant risks. The following year, the new global village caused ructions again, when six British players went off in a quest for El Dorado. When a dispute led to the Colombian Football Federation withdrawing from FIFA, the country's clubs were freed from the need to abide by any regulations in their quest for new players from around the world. Six players, including Stoke City's Neil Franklin, who was considered by many to be one of the finest defenders in the world, were contacted by the Colombian clubs and offered contracts which their English clubs simply couldn't offer as a result of the maximum wage rule. The disruption caused by all of this is considered to be one of the minor contributory factors in the disastrous preparation which led to England's terrible performance at the 1950 World Cup in Brazil. But ultimately, the quest for El Dorado didn't end well for anybody. The players themselves arrived in Colombia only to find promises being broken left, right and centre. They mostly returned to England within a year, having made little to none of the money that they had been promised, their reputations having suffered serious damage, and their careers ultimately in tatters, smeared by the nickname the Bogota Bandits. If football was going to change in the 1950s, these changes were going to come about as a result of increasingly accessible travel and as ever, technological innovation. The BBC had launched its television service from Alexandra Palace in 1936, but with just 15,000 sets being sold in the first three years, there were no major cultural ructions when the corporation cut the service upon the outbreak of war in 1939. The service resumed in 1946, but it took a further seven years for football to worm its way into the heart of the nation's cultural life. When King George VI died in November 1952, it was the appointment of his successor, Elizabeth II, which proved to be the new medium's great leap forward. Sales and rentals of television sets had been growing steadily over the previous few years, but when the confirmation came through that Elizabeth's coronation was to be shown live on the television, millions decided to take the leap. The number of television licences leapt from 750,000 in 1951 to 3.2 million in 1953, 
and that year's FA Cup final between Blackpool and Bolton Wanderers was a convenient warm-up event for the BBC, at a time when the corporation was fully aware that the eyes of the nation would be focused upon them in a way that they had never been before. The BBC secured the rights to televise the Wembley game for a fee of £1,000, with the Football Association stating, The national interest in soccer must come first. However, the light programme broadcast only a second-half commentary on the radio, having failed to persuade the FA to mirror television's coverage of the entire game. Ten million people watched the match live on the television, a figure which compares favourably with recent television audiences for the FA Cup final. Furthermore, this was a final with a narrative. Stanley Matthews, the Blackpool winger, was arguably the nearest thing that English football had to a superstar at the time. Matthews, like so many others, had lost six years of his playing career to the war, and by the time of this match he was 38 years old. He'd also never won the FA Cup, and this was widely considered to be his last opportunity to do so. The match came to be known as the Matthews Final, of course, but on the day it was the contribution of others that ended up taking the Cup back to Bloomfield Road. Stan Mortensen became the first player to score a hat-trick in an FA Cup final, whilst it was Bill Perry who scrambled the ball over the line in the last minute to complete a Blackpool comeback from 3-1 down to win the match by four goals to three. Matthews got his medal, but would later admit that he was mortified by the match being named for him, and Stan Mortensen would remain comparatively out of the spotlight despite his hat-trick during the game itself. When Mortensen died in 1991, Matthew Engel of the Times commented pithily that they'll probably call it the Matthews Funeral. There's the man who's really fighting for his cup medal. Could he score the winning goal now, himself? He's there! Perry! Perry! What a final! Just look at the smoker, just look at the people. What a comeback. There's Barris up in the Bolton attack. And I think the whistle any second now. There's every Bolton player now except the two fullbacks in the... There it is! And where's Stanley Matthews? There's Joe Smith running on to him. There's Stanley. At long last, he's done it. And everybody cheering him. And what a great final this has been. There's Joe Smith with Matthews. Well... Other than television and more accessible air travel, the innovation that would come to steer professional football's course throughout the post-war years was floodlighting. As a winter sport, football had issues with matches finishing in the dark from its inception. Kick-off times were routinely brought forward to prevent matches from ending in gloom, but the FA were, unsurprisingly, resistant to their use. Floodlights had, however, been on the periphery of the game since the 19th century. Their first recorded use in England came in 1878 at Bramall Lane in Sheffield. 
when an estimated crowd of 20,000 people watched an exhibition match played under lights, mounted on four wooden poles, powered by four electric dynamos, two behind each goal. The FA, however, considered them to be a novelty, and banned their use for competitive matches. Still, though, the experimentation continued, and in 1930, Herbert Chapman had them installed at Highbury, first on the training pitch behind the ground, and then under the roof of the stand inside the ground for the same ostensible purposes. It wasn't until after the end of the Second World War that the resistance to their use started to break down. Attendances were hitting record levels, and full-time employment meant that employers could hardly afford to lose staff to midweek matches being played in the afternoon. It took a few years for the momentum to truly start building, though. Fuel shortages and post-war austerity measures saw to that. The sands, however, were shifting. In 1949, non-league club South Liverpool played a Nigerian eleven under floodlights at their Holly Park ground in front of a crowd of 13,000 people, which included representatives from several football league clubs who were keen to see just how this new technology was developing. The FA finally ended their ban on floodlighting in December 1950, and it was another non-league club, Headington United, who were the first to play a competitive match under them in this new era, a charity match against Banbury Spencer. A month later, the FA added a qualifier to their previous lifting of the ban, requiring that clubs get permission from them, their local county football association or the competition organisers in order to play competitive matches under lights. The first big test of these new rules came at the start of the 1951-52 season, when Southampton requested permission to play a football combination match under their lights, which they had spent the not inconsiderable sum of £600 installing earlier in the year. The FA agreed, so on the 1st of October 1951, Southampton Reserves played Tottenham Hotspur Reserves at the Dell, the first league match ever played under lights in England. A crowd of over 13,000 people turned out to watch the match, drawn by a combination of Spurs being the defending Football League champions and the novelty of the match being played under lights in the first place. In September 1953, floodlighting hit national headlines again. Again it was Headington United, who had become the first club to install permanent floodlighting four years earlier, who requested permission from the FA to play an FA Cup replay against Millwall under their lights. Their request was refused, but the story made national news headlines, with the Liverpool manager Bill Shankly saying... Good luck to Little Headington for having the pluck to ask a very, very important question and arouse interest which could be a portent for the future. The following year, however, would come a floodlit match that would come to have a very far-reaching consequences indeed. In the winter of the 1953-54 season, Wolverhampton Wanderers decided to test their newly installed floodlights with a series of high-profile international floodlit friendly matches, in which the top foreign sides of the day were invited to the Midlands to play one of England's top club sides.
One match, however, took on particular significance. The England national team had endured a humiliation against Hungary at Wembley in November of the previous year, and this had been compounded six months later when they travelled to Budapest for a return match, only to be beaten by seven goals to one. Against this backdrop, then, it's unsurprising that Wolves' match against Honved of Budapest should have attracted so much attention. Honved were the four times champions of Hungary, and their team contained six of the players that had humiliated England so comprehensively a little over 13 months earlier. This, it was reckoned, was an opportunity to claw back a little national pride. Such was the interest in the match that the BBC, who had previously only broadcast matches from the London area, sent their outside broadcast unit to Molyneux to cover the match live on the television. Still though, there were logistical issues. Television may have been ready for football, but football wasn't really ready for television, and the BBC had to set up their camera gantry behind one of the goals. Poor light meant that they could only show the second half live. They got lucky. Honved had raced into a two-goal lead in the first half, but as the heavy pitch started to take its toll on the visiting players, Wolves came back in the second half, recovering to win the match on live television by three goals to two. The Hungarian champions Honved challenged Wolverhampton Wanderers at the Molyneux Ground, Wolverhampton. Nearly 60,000 watched the Wolves kick off. Straight away, they're attacking up the right wing, showing the courage that swept them to victory over Spartak. Hancock's worries goalie Farago, who has little time to recover before left-winger Smith has a go. Makos leads the visitors upfield, but Williams is there. The Shorthouse takes up the running. The Hungarians seem to settle down first on the mud pie pitch. Now they're off on the raid that brings the first incident of the match. Budai, number seven, and Flowers give chase. The ball wraps Flowers' hand and referee Griffiths awards a free kick to Hungary. Did he handle it or didn't he? No time to argue now, for Puskas takes the kick and Coxis heads it home. One goal down, Wolves hit back. Flowers kicks upfield, but only to start a movement by the Honved machine. So far, the visitors seem to have control of the game, but the Wolves often take some time to warm up. Now Shorthouse and Swinborn swing play round and head for Honved's goal. Swinborne must score, but Farago saves the day. Honved are off again. The ball goes to Coxis. On to Makos. Billy Wright's in pursuit. 2-0 now after that great goal by Makos. Wolves are in real trouble and now Budai has it. Into the centre where goalie Williams fights desperately to keep the Wolves net clear. 2-0 is the half-time score. Honved set the ball rolling, but soon there's an indication of things to come, for it's Wolves who get possession. Away they go along the left wing with a determined attack. Smith shoots, but the ball shaves the post on the wrong side. That shows that Honved's defence isn't impregnable. Wolves right back Stewart sets his team off once more. Now incident number two as Kovacs obstructs Hancock's in the penalty area. A penalty, says the ref, and Hancock's takes it. 2-1, and Wolves are coming back with a vengeance. Now, out to the left wing. Will Shaw to Swinborn, who makes no mistake with a header into the net. 2 all. 
two minutes later and Smith races down the left wing. Then he makes a perfect pass to Swinburne, who cracks in his second goal. The goal that makes the final score 3-2 to the Happy Wanderers. Wolves have licked the greatest club side in the world. Given the build-up to the match, the hysterical nature of the reaction to the result wasn't particularly surprising. The Daily Express editorialised that English football was still the genuine, original, unbeatable article and still the best of its kind in the world. While the Daily Mail gave Wolves the nickname Champions of the World, a label which was enthusiastically picked up by the Wolves manager, Stan Cullis. The reaction on the other side of the English Channel was, of course, less enthused. Gabriel Arnaud, the editor of the French football magazine L'Equipe, wrote that, Before we declare that Wolverhampton are invincible, let them go to Moscow and Budapest. And there are other internationally renowned clubs, Milan and Real Madrid, to name but two. A club world championship, or at least a European one, larger, more meaningful and more prestigious than the Metropa Cup and more original than a competition for national teams, should be launched. South America had been running the Campeonato Sudamericano de Campeones since 1948 and another French journalist, Jacques Ferrand, had been in Chile covering the competition, reporting with enthusiasm on a tournament that he would later confirm would be the template upon which the European Cup would be based. There was now momentum behind the idea of a pan-European club competition. The Union of European Football Associations, UEFA, had already been formed in June 1954, and the proliferation of floodlights and cheap flights across the continent meant that matches could be played midweek, meaning that domestic leagues wouldn't be impacted by an international competition, whilst the dawning of the jet age made travelling abroad much easier and less expensive. If England could fly... If England could fly to Brazil for a World Cup Finals in 1950, why couldn't Wolverhampton Wanderers fly to Reims, Madrid or Milan? Clubs for whom adding an elite competition was desirable from competitive, prestigious and financial perspectives were all in favour. At UEFA's first conference, held in March 1955, the Confederation formally adopted the idea to begin at the start of the following season but there would be no English representation at the first European Cup. Chelsea had finished the 1954-55 season as the champions of England for the first time and applied to enter the competition. They were even entered into the draw and were scheduled to face the Swedish side Geogardens in the first round, but they were reckoning without domestic governing bodies which were not moving with the times. Alan Hardacre the secretary of the Football League at the time, believed that Chelsea should not play in the competition for fear of congestion and a loss of prestige from his own competition. And after a vote by the FA, the decision was taken to withdraw Chelsea from the competition. Chelsea's chairman, Gus Mears, was even on the committee that made the decision that he was ultimately powerless and it would be 44 years before Chelsea would compete in the European Cup successor, the UEFA Champions League. It would take a year for an English club to appear in the European Cup, and even this came against the wishes of both the FA and the Football League.
Now football is a pleasant game Play in the sun, play in the rain And the team that gets me excited Manchester United Manchester Manchester United A bunch of bouncing Busby babes They deserve to be knighted If ever they're playing in your town You must get to that football ground Take a lesson, come to see Football taught by Matt Busby and Manchester Manchester United A bunch of bouncing Busby babes They deserve to be knighted The Manchester United team, built by Matt Busby from the late 1940s on, was notable for its youth and for the fact that the majority of the team was made up of players that the club had brought through itself. It was given the nickname of the Busby Babes by Manchester Evening News journalist Tom Jackson in 1951. Busby's team had won the FA Cup in 1948, but it wasn't until 1952 when they won the First Division Championship for the first time in 41 years, that the potential of this team started to become clear to the outside world. With Busby's team undergoing a refresh, a couple of leaner years followed. But in 1956, United won the First Division Championship by 11 points, with a team with an average age of just 22 years old. And Busby wasn't going to let this team miss out on a place in the European Cup, as Chelsea had a year earlier, even though it was still against the wishes of the authorities. On the 12th of September 1956 then, Manchester United became the first English club to compete in the European Cup, winning 2-0 against Anderlecht in Brussels. They won the return leg by 10 goals to nil. Aggregate wins against Borussia Dortmund and Athletic Bilbao followed but United's run came to an end in the semi-finals against the holders, Real Madrid. United found consolation by successfully defending their league title at the end of the 1956-57 season. Their second tilt at the European Cup started under somewhat unusual circumstances at Dalymount Park in Dublin, which had no floodlights, for a match against Shamrock Rovers. In order to facilitate an evening kick-off, the teams agreed to change ends at half-time without a break, and consequently the part-time Irish team ran out of steam in the second half, and Manchester United increased their lead by five goals after having led by just the one at half-time. A win against Duke La Prague followed in the next round. On the 14th of January 1958, Manchester United played Red Star Belgrade at Old Trafford in the first leg of the quarter-finals of the European Cup, and won by two goals to one. The return match in Belgrade ended in a 3-3 draw, but only after United had scored three goals in the first 31 minutes. Their eventual 5-4 aggregate win was tighter than Busby might have wanted. Red Star scored three goals in 12 minutes to haul themselves level, and United had to play out for more than half an hour with just a one-goal lead. But they did hold on, setting up a semi-final match against Milan. The return flight stopped to refuel in Munich, because a non-stop flight from Belgrade to Manchester was beyond the airspeed ambassador plane's range. After refuelling though, pilots James Thane and Kenneth Raymond twice abandoned takeoff because of boost surging in the left engine. Fearing that they would get too far behind schedule, 
Captain Thane rejected an overnight stay in Munich in favour of a third takeoff attempt. By then, snow was falling, causing a layer of slush to form at the end of the runway. After the aircraft hit the slush, it ploughed through a fence beyond the end of the runway, and the left wing was torn off after hitting a house. Fearing the aircraft might explode, Thane began evacuating passengers, while the Manchester United goalkeeper Harry Gregg helped pull survivors from the wreckage of the plane. On the fringe of a Munich airport lies the wreckage of an airliner, still smouldering from a crash in which 21 people were killed. Tragedy enough at any time. But in that plane were a group of young men who were almost the personal friends of millions. Manchester United, the finest soccer team Britain has produced since the war. And seven of them died in the crash. Ten others, as well as their famous manager, Matt Busby, were injured. Some so seriously that their lives hung in the balance. Manchester, from the moment the news came through, was a city in mourning. Newspapers sold as fast as they could be printed. It was as though every family in a city of three quarters of a million people had suffered a personal loss, and so indeed they had. At Old Trafford, the saddest football ground in the world, the flags flew at half-mast. And on hundreds of other football grounds, other flags were being dipped in sympathy. For this disaster is perhaps the most tragic single blow British sport has ever suffered. Seven Manchester United players, Roger Byrne, Eddie Coleman, Mark Jones, Billy Whelan, Tommy Taylor, David Pegg and Jeff Bent were dead, along with 15 others, including the club secretary Walter Crickmer, trainer Tom Curry and coach Bert Wally. Amongst the others who died was the former England and Manchester City goalkeeper Frank Swift, who was travelling as a journalist. As if to prolong the club's agony, Duncan Edwards, arguably United's dearest player of the era, died 15 days later in hospital. Matt Busby remained in intensive care for two months before travelling to Switzerland to recuperate. The show, however, had to go on, though there was speculation that United, who had been involved in a tussle for what would have been a third consecutive league title, might not even be able to complete the 1957-58 season. With assistant manager Jimmy Murphy standing in, Murphy had not travelled to Belgrade as he was in Cardiff managing the Welsh national team at the time, a team largely made up of reserve and youth team players beat Sheffield Wednesday 3-0 in the first match following the disaster. The programme for that match showed blank spaces where each United player's name should have been. With only two players involved in the accident, Harry Gregg and Bill Folks fit to play, United were desperate to find replacements with experience, so Murphy signed Ernie Taylor from Blackpool and Stan Crowther from Aston Villa. Three further players, Derek Lewin, Bob Hardesty and Warren Bradley, were transferred to the club on short-term contracts from amateur club Bishop Auckland. There was no more room for sentimentality on a football pitch in 1958 than there would be today, though. Manchester United only won one further league match over the remainder of the season and finished in ninth place in the table. They reached that year's FA Cup final, 
but were beaten at Wembley by Bolton Wanderers. Milan defeated their patchwork team comfortably in the semi-finals of the European Cup. The investigation into the crash caused further controversy. It was originally blamed on pilot error, but it was later found to have been caused by slush towards the end of the runway, which slowed the aircraft down and prevented it from reaching a safe flying speed. Despite this conclusion, though, German authorities took legal action against Captain Thane as the one pilot who had survived the crash. They claimed that he had taken off without clearing the wings of ice and caused the crash, despite several witnesses stating that no ice had been seen. De-icing the aircraft's wings was the captain's responsibility, while the state of the airport's runways was the responsibility of the airport authorities, among whom there was widespread ignorance of the danger of slough from runways for aircraft such as the Ambassador. The basis of the German authorities' case relied on the icy condition of the wings hours after the crash, and a photograph of the aircraft taken shortly before takeoff, which appeared to show snow on the upper wing surfaces. When the original negative was examined, though, no snow or ice could be seen, and what was considered to have been snow was actually found to be the sun reflecting off the wings. This could only be seen from the negative rather than published pictures, which had been produced from a copy of the negative. Witnesses were not called to the German inquiry, but proceedings against Thane dragged on until 1968, when he was finally cleared of any responsibility for the accident. As the official cause, British authorities recorded a build-up of melting snow on the runway, which prevented the aircraft from reaching its required takeoff speed. Captain Thane, who had been dismissed by BEA shortly after the accident, retired, but died from a heart attack at the age of just 53 in 1975. Manchester United would, of course, go on to conquer Europe in time. The Busby Babes, meanwhile, became immortal through their deaths, and they remain the gold standard against which all Manchester United teams are judged. The club's biggest triumphs, though, would come in a professional football world very different to that of the Babes, as the game continued to march towards an industrialised and televised future. I do is wrong You give me love and consolation You give me hope to carry on And you try to show your love for me In everything That's the wonder, the wonder of you. Thank you for listening to this 200 
forget to rate and review on iTunes. Find us on Facebook by searching 200percent.net or on Twitter at 2WOHP. Be good to each other and robots.